It's great to worship with you today. It's been kind of nice to be able to be out there among you uh, instead of being up here. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. God is so worthy of our praise. And it's such a privilege that we can gather together and lift his name up together. Um, I've wanted uh, last Sunday and today leading up to Thanksgiving to focus my messages on the idea of giving thanks. Uh, my daughter told me this morning that my sermon last Sunday was kind of weird. Um, and <laughs> we'll, we'll hold on to your horses because... Uh, Today's might be a little weirder, uh, but uh, I, just the idea of gratitude, um, I, I think it, it, it's such an important part of our life, and not because God is insecure, God doesn't feel appreciated, he's got the kind of psychological problems we've got. God doesn't have self-esteem problems. He doesn't need us to talk him up. He doesn't need us to convince him he's the greatest thing ever. He doesn't need any of that from us. Gratitude is something we need. It's something that uh, if, if, if we do not learn to respond appropriately to the goodness of God to us, we are the ones who are cheated in the process. We are the ones who are missing out on the true experience of what we were built by God to be. So uh, we talked a little bit last week about uh, gratitude. And uh, I want to talk today also about gratitude. Um, and what are, what are the things we can be grateful to God for? What wonderful things does God do for us that we should respond to in gratitude? And if I were to ask you, what's the greatest thing to be grateful to God for? You might have a hard time picking. What is the single most significant tangible thing God gives to us if we turn to him in faith? Could it be uh, that uh, he has forgiven our sins, that crushing weight that was going to drag us to the grave and to death? That's certainly something to be grateful for. Maybe it's reconciliation with himself. We were enemies of God. And even so, while we were yet enemies, he came and died for us so that we could be reconciled. And not just that. Not just reconciled to him, but every time we sin, we wound somebody in our lives. To be reconciled to one another. That's a great thing that God gives us that we can be grateful for. That he is at work by the miracle of his Holy Spirit in our very souls to transform us. And to free us from the power of sin and death so that we can be restored to a right relationship with him. And a right relationship of love with one another. Maybe we could say we're grateful to God for victory over sin and death, for the promise of resurrection and eternal life. Abundant, eternal life. Any one of these could be singled out as, well, that is the single most amazing thing God gives to us if we turn to him in faith. I wanted to highlight today one that might not be the first thing you think about. What about fellowship? Fellowship. 
What about God walking with us in life? What about not being alone because of God? That's what we're going to look at today. And I do think that this fellowship that God opens up to us is a huge are you sure you have the right sermon up there? We're supposed to be in Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Okay. Um, I've titled the message, uh, Fellowship and Gratitude. And uh, let me read uh, a reference to the, the passage we're going to look at in Genesis that's found in Hebrews 11. This parade of faith, uh, this character is mentioned in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death. And he was not to be found because God took him up. Before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe or have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I want to talk a little bit before we get to the passage. We're in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about the narrative structure of the book of Genesis. Uh, There are many observations we can make about how the book of Genesis is arranged or put together. But uh, one of the things that people have observed is that there are a series of passages that begin with the same phrase. These are the generations of... Now, most often in the book of Genesis, what follows is a genealogy, a family tree. These are the generations of so-and-so, and and then you'll have him and and all of his descendants. And there are a number of these in the book of Genesis, but the first of all of these generations is not a a group of people, uh, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, it's not a genealogy, but it's actually the creation itself in Genesis 2. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4, we read the first of these generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. So that's laid out as the first generation covered in the book of Genesis. And that is the creation itself, the generating by God of all of creation, culminating in the creation of man, of Adam and Eve. We get to the second of these generations in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, and in the Hebrew there, it's actually the name Adam, because the name Adam comes to be used in Hebrew to mean man. When God created man, or Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man, again, Adam, when they were created. The second generation uh, that we're told about uh, here in chapter 5 begins with Adam and I think it's very interesting the progression because chapter 5 is basically this genealogy of Adam and it takes us from Adam to Noah all the way from Adam to Noah and it's a list of 10 descendants of Adam and we are told as we introduce this generation that uh, God blessed Adam when he created him. And not just Adam, but mankind, humankind, male and female, when he created them, he blessed them. 
But we know that that blessing didn't last long. Immediately, Adam and Eve disobey God. They are expelled from the Garden of Eden. They are outside of that blessing and protection and that promise of life. And they are excluded from all of that. So we, we go in Genesis 5 in this sad genealogy that starts with blessing and ends with curse. Notice uh, right before the last one in this list, Noah is born. His father has this plea for change because for these ten generations, humankind has been living under the curse of sin and exclusion from the blessing that was to be known in the Garden of Eden. Lamech. Noah's father, when Noah is born, has this voice of a plea for change. This one will bring us comfort from our labor and from the painful toil of our hands because of the ground that Yahweh has cursed. We have in chapter 5 of Genesis this sad progression from the blessing of God to uh, an existence under curse under the curse God has emitted against sin. And uh, we conclude, we reach the end of this with a note of hope that God will do something about this. And that is exactly what happens with Noah. Noah becomes kind of a new Adam. It's kind of a, a beginning again. Of course, it's not a return to Eden because sin is still present in the world, but it is a moment in which a lot of wickedness is trimmed back and there is a new start for the human family. And it's also a moment in which God makes this commitment to humankind. I will not eradicate life. And it's basically God's first indication in the Bible that he's committing to redeem, that he's committing to rescue creation from sin and death. I notice, I can't help but notice, some numerological things in this genealogy. Noah is the tenth generation listed. And uh, in terms of how Hebrews used numbers and the kind of concepts they associated with numbers, uh, the number 10 tends to be associated with completion. And it really is from Adam to Noah. We have kind of the completion of the story of the curse. And it concludes with God stepping in to do something about that curse. Thank you. Uh, by eradicating uh, a whole generation of absolute wickedness on earth through the flood, but also committing with the ark and Noah and his family to intervene redemptively in the midst of his judgment against sin. There is very much a, a sense of completion to this sad story of nothing but curse. And we have right in the middle of that genealogy Enoch, who clocks in at number seven in the genealogy. And seven is the number associated with perfection. And I think uh, what we have here is a very careful structuring of this genealogy. There are two ways. Now, please hear me when I say this. I'm not suggesting that what we have here is made up that these names are simply thrown together haphazardly. I do believe we're dealing with uh, actual people. 
but there are a couple of ways this could happen, that these numbers happen to line up in certain ways. One would be simply divine providence. God can work in such a way that he so orchestrates human lives that these uh, numerical uh, things happen to line up that way. Another thing I would say is that there is a very common Hebrew practice that when you're listing a genealogy, to say son of is uh, no different than to say grandson of or great-great-grandson of. It just means descendant of. So it could be that as this is being compiled to keep the list of genealogies from being burdensomely long, uh, that names have been trimmed down to the significant names in this genealogy and done so in such a way that numerologically at seven you have Enoch and you you can highlight something through that number and at 10 you have Noah um, and simply you've omitted uh, a whole list of names uh, that could have been there but weren't necessary to to fill out this genealogy however it works out I, I do think there's some intentionality to how these numbers happen to fi- happen to to lay out there So let's get to the passage we're looking at. And it's short. I'm not going to keep you long today because I know we have food getting cold. Um, So we'll we'll try to uh, move through this uh, in in quick time. Let's read uh, Genesis 5.21. We're in the middle of this genealogy. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Do you know what Methuselah is famous for? My hearing is not good enough, but I'm assuming you're saying he was really old. Um, But yeah, Methuselah is, uh, of the lifespans listed in the Bible, Methuselah's is the longest. Methuselah, according to the Bible, lived 969 years. And we do observe in this genealogy maybe a period of adjustment between the initial fall and expulsion from Eden and kind of a point where human lifespans normalize at... uh, Very seldom do we cross the barrier of 100 years. Um, There does seem to be this period of adjustment, and Methuselah is the one who lives the longest, but that's the only thing Methuselah is known for. In fact, you may have heard people mention him in that context. Uh, Something is as old as Methuselah. It's a way of saying something's really old. You don't want that said about you, probably, but... um, He didn't really contribute anything significant other than that he lived. And coincidentally, if you do the math, he he apparently died in the year of the flood. Um, But Enoch lives 65 years. And we have, like I said, this number seven in the middle of this sad genealogy of humankind in this very bleak and dark uh, period where... This is how horrible this period of human history is, that when we get to Noah, we are told that he was the only person on the face of the earth that loved God. Can you imagine the loneliness involved there, being the single human being on earth that has any interest in God? What kind of a world was it? Well, bad enough that God brought the flood and... uh, Use Noah to give humankind a fresh start. But this whole sad story of decline and and the spread of sin among humankind like a cancer just eating and destroying everything about creation. Right there in the middle we have this 
very brief mention of Enoch, who clocks in at number seven in the list of names were given. Let's keep reading, verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. This is the one, the, there are two significant things we know about Enoch. One is, and this is the one that's mentioned twice, that he walked with God. Enoch shared his life with God. You would think, you know, God has cursed humankind, expelled them from the Garden of Eden. It's like God has said, I'm done with you guys. You have sinned. I don't want anything to do with you. You don't deserve to be in my presence. Get out of here. And we see this sad story of decline where human wickedness just gets worse and worse and worse and there is no hope. By the time Noah's born, there's this plea. Maybe someone will be used by God to bring some relief Because this land is cursed by Yahweh. In the middle of this, we have this little oasis with Enoch. And we're told that he walked with God. So it's evident that God has not stepped away. He didn't just kick humankind out of Eden and said, I'm going to stay here in the nice place. You guys figure it out out there. You're on your own now. Deal with it. No, God is still present with us in the, on the ugly side. God traveled east of Eden with us and journeyed for 300 years with Enoch. He shared life with Enoch. I imagine, given the darkness that surrounded him, that that meant everything to Enoch. Can you imagine living in this time in human history where it all seems so bleak and hopeless, there's not even a hint of rescue. And to find that God is willing to walk with you through this life. That's what Enoch had. By the way, that word in Hebrew is halakha, which came by the time we get to the New Testament, came to be used by Jews to describe keeping the commandments of God. When you uh, look at all the commandments and you live your life in accordance with the commandments of God, that's what the rabbis called halakha. It was the way you walk. You walk in accordance with God's instructions. Well, uh, there was no law when Enoch was alive. He, had, he did not have the law of Moses. He did not have the 613 commandments. But he had God who walked with him through life. Let's read 23 and 24. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Notice that we just have these couple of verses mentioning Enoch. And in the little bit that we're told about Enoch, we are told twice that he walked with God. That tells me that's an important detail about Enoch's life. He shared life with God. 
And then it doesn't say like everybody else in the genealogy, he slept with his fathers or he passed away or he died. Uh, It just says he was not. For God took him. Enoch is one of only two figures we know in the Bible that apparently did not experience death the way people normally do. Uh, Enoch and Elijah is the other. Uh, but you can imagine in the, through the history of Israel that Enoch captured the imagination of the Jews so that in the intertestamental period, people wrote books in the name of Enoch, supposedly uh, uh, speculating about some hidden knowledge Enoch must have had because of this close connection with God, walking with God for 300 years. Uh, he lived a, a year of years. Uh, a year has 365 days. That's how many years he lived before God took him. And it isn't just that God walked with him and shared life with him. God took him with him into eternity. God brought him into eternity with him. We see in Enoch What all's involved? The scope of fellowship God is looking for with us. He doesn't just want to accompany us in this life. Or he doesn't just want us to accompany him, us to walk with him, us to share our life with him. But he wants to invite us in that shared walk into eternity with him. To share it forever. So I don't know this Thanksgiving, what's going on in your life. I know this past year has been very difficult for many people. I am so grateful to God that uh, we have lost a lot of people worldwide to COVID, but uh, we haven't had a huge uh, degree of loss on that front in our church uh, specifically. And I'm so grateful to God for that, that we... Uh, are not uh, grieving as many losses as some churches are. But even so, we have lost things. And it may be that as we come into this time that we ponder the idea of thanksgiving, of giving thanks to God, that we find it hard because of the pain we have and the difficulties we're struggling with in our own hearts and lives. There's no getting around the fact that the world is often a dark and painful place. I think our gratitude needs to be attached not to the absence of that pain, not to the absence of that darkness, but to the presence of God in the midst of it. Here's what we can always be thankful for. Even in the darkest moment of our lives, that we are not in that hole alone. That we are not in that darkness alone. But that God is there with us. He wants to receive our worship. He wants to receive our hearts. And no matter how dark the world gets around us, this is the confidence we can have in him. That he will be with us. Nobody can take that from us. In fact, I think sometimes our level of distress in life may come from a form of idolatry. 
where we give our heart to something other than God. We connect our heart to our spouse or our children or our friends or our career or this or that thing and we get so tied up in that that sometimes in the circumstances of life we may lose something like that. There's only one who never leaves. There's only one who never fails. And when our hearts are rooted in him, we can live in gratitude no matter what. Because that is the one piece that can never be taken from us. I want to encourage you as we approach this Thanksgiving season to be grateful to God, not just for the things he's given you, not just for the things he's done for you. Be grateful to God for being there for you. Be grateful to God for being God and being good and being there. Let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that when we turn to you in faith, you take us to yourself. And you share not only this life with us, but eternity. You share your eternity with us. Help us each to turn to you in grateful surrender. Take our lives. Walk with us in this life and the next. Take us with you where you are. Lord, as we approach this season of giving thanks, and I know many hearts are burdened by sorrows and loss and difficulties. Lord, I pray that your presence is the healing balm. That your goodness is the light that makes all darkness less. Help our hearts to center on you. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful to you for all you have done. Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that you take our offerings and tithes as we give them on the way out and that you use them to draw people to yourself and to build your kingdom. And Lord, as we go across the way here and share a meal together, bless our, our fellowship. May it be sweet because of your spirit. Thank you for the food you have provided, the fact that we are not going hungry today, but actually have plenty of food to share with one another. Thank you for binding our hearts together in the love that only your spirit can produce. Lord, we love you. Bless our time to get today as we fellowship together in your name. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.